Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Welcome, dear reader, to Dispatches from the Armchair. There's so much news, and the world moves so fast. What are the big ideas and historical forces that are really shaping our world? Go deeper than the headlines with Dispatches from the Armchair. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Well, hello there, Pacific War Channel. The channel will recover the entire Asia-Pacific War of 1937 to 1945 and all the major events that led up to it. And I'm here with my friend, John. Hey, Uh, I'm John. I'm from the podcast Dispatches from the Armchair, where we talk about all kinds of history and current events, trying to get a little bit behind the headlines, you know, a little deeper into uh, deeper than like the what the obvious things will tell you, uh, trying to get get the story beyond what the casuals will tell you, as we like to say. And I'm really excited to be here, you know. Uh, Craig, I'm a huge fan of your channel and uh, a huge fan of history, especially, you know, being Chinese myself, I'm a huge fan of any kind of Asian history and a huge military history nerd. So it's a real, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here to talk about uh, one of the probably the greatest uh, shames and humiliations of my people, uh, the first Sino-Japanese War. Uh, And I know you said that we are starting off, you know, that your channel covers the Pacific War of 1937. So we're <laughs> going to start things right here in 1894. Oh, yeah. People, uh, uh, as soon as I started the channel, I got the first questions I got was like, the first opium war, the second opium, what are we doing here? What is this all about? <laughs> and, uh, you know, in university, that's where my professor started. And that's all I had to say to it. It's like, as uh, from an academic standpoint, how do you even touch a war between majorly like China and Japan without talking about the grievances, yeah. the major yeah. grievances? Yeah. 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 How do we get here in the first place? I had a very similar situation uh, when I was in, you know, at being an American, we call it college. Uh, we, when I was in college, I took a class called uh, Japan. It's called Japan War in the Pacific. And everybody thought it was going to be a class about World War II. But it started off with the Meiji Restoration, and it ended, uh, it ended with the invasion of Manchuria. That's a good course. That really it was a great it, course. It was it, a great yeah. course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and no this, one learns that. It's it's sad, but it's true. And I think the it's we're going off topic already. But I think the story of the Meiji Restoration is probably like as. I think that is probably one of the most inspirational stories uh, that I've ever heard. It's the story of somebody who got blindsided by circumstances that they could never have expected, uh, was was able to painfully swallow their pride, face up to the changed circumstances, and change you know on their own power in their own initiative, look at the new world that they found themselves in, change almost everything about themselves. Um, but because they were voluntarily took on these changes um, on their own, instead of being, having these changes foisted on them from outside, they were able to not only preserve like the, the aspects of themselves that they hold most dear, but also to excel um, and compete with all of the new uh, powerful players in this new world that they find themselves in. I think, you know, as personally, as human beings, as individuals, it's so easy for us to just get stuck in our ways, especially as we get older, we find things that work and just kind of shut out outside influences. But, um, you know, that's dangerous. It might feel comfortable and easy in the moment, but uh, that's uh, that's the slow road to destruction. Complacency is the road to defeat. Complacency is the road to defeat, just like it says uh, in the StarCraft instruction manual. <laughs> awesome call. Oh, my God. <laughs> StarCraft. I, I miss the I miss the old days, in the nineties. Oh, oh yeah, Something. yeah, yeah. Funny fact: uh, one of the best players in the world for StarCraft. Uh, he lived where I am, and for a long really? time he was the reigning champion. Uh, Kiwi. Oh my God, his name is Kiwi something. And uh, yeah, he went to all the local tournaments. We got to see him in action. It was crazy. 
That's awesome. He had the throne for four years, I think. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, StarCraft, like- that's a, that's not a game for casuals. you got to be a serious gamer to be good at StarCraft. Yeah. And I like what you were saying about the, the major restoration because it, it has a lot to do with this event. Because basically, you know, Japan had the benefit of the doubt because China had undergone two major wars with the West and a major rebellion. So Japan got to see this before they basically got blindsided. And they basically got to see what happens if they took certain course of actions, which really led to their decision to, like you said, swallow a lot of it. Although they did retain a lot of their culture in unique ways. Absolutely. They, I mean, there was one point where the educational minister, uh, Mori Antonori, he, he actually talked about getting rid of the language and going with English that crazy. Oh yeah. Yeah. That China did the same thing after the fall of the Qing dynasty. They talked about getting rid of Chinese and switching to Esperanto. (laughs) oh yeah that would have been that would have been crazy right yeah i mean i mean having read like the wikipedia page on esperanto that's a that was a brave idea uh both i mean that both in the american sense of like hey that's a courageous idea and in the british sense of like that's kind of a dumb idea (laughs) it was uh i mean there was a a large group of people that really thought that was going to solve a lot of issues in the world i can see where they're coming from i mean Nowadays, in the age of Google Translate, it's kind of easy to uh, dismiss language, like the language barrier as being inconsequential. But I find especially, and I'm sure you found this too, especially as you start studying Chinese history, these sources are so, it's so hard to find good sources from the Chinese perspective because they're all in Chinese and they have not been translated. And you would think that that you know, it'd be easy to jump that barrier, but obviously it isn't because we, you know, even for me, a ethnically Chinese person, it's hard for me to bridge that gap. And that's one of the reasons I'm uh, studying Chinese now. Yeah, it's definitely, especially when it came to this one. Uh, I actually went with one book because um, I was having an issue because it's such a politicized uh, war and both oh, sides, yeah. you know, they embezzle what they're saying i went with a, a western scholar which you shouldn't for uh, any histories of asia uh, ezra vogel she wrote uh, china and japan facing history so it was more of okay. a, a broad spectrum of all the events that happened in asia but she uh she went about saying allegedly a lot because she didn't want to take a stand when it came to things but i i found that she Safe. called out yeah she called out the japanese though quite often which was nice she had a particularly a good way of melding like yes the Qing administration the, the Qing administration was corrupt and there was a lot of problems but she's like also the Japanese are guilty of espionage and stuff as well I mean they had their hand to play for sure for sure uh, for this uh, for this conflict I drew on a variety of sources but by far the one I I'm going to be drawing on the most heavily today is uh, a book by SCM Payne the Sino-Japanese War of 1894 to 1895 perceptions power and primacy i thought this was a really nice uh military history book yeah yeah and i especially liked his argument that you know in china they talk a lot about the opium wars uh, but really it's this war the first sino-japanese war that created that did most of the things that china wants now to undo it's this war that caused uh, China to lose control over Taiwan. It's this war that caused uh, China to lose uh, suzerainty over Korea. It's this war that really kind of opened China up to foreign exploitation, uh, even more so than the Opium Wars did. Uh, at the time, the Opium Wars, uh, there's, there's reason to believe that the Opium Wars was reviewed inside China as like just another conflict with barbarians on the frontier. But this time, this was like you just got you just got your ass beat by your little brother, and yeah. there's there's no way to explain that away. You know, I wanted to name the episode, but someone told me not to go with it. Little brother beats big brother, or little Ooh. brother faces big brother. But I, yeah, I took away all titles. I just called it what it is, part one, and part two. Uh, I I finished uh, only today the script. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's that's safe. Yeah. That's safe. And I know uh, we had wanted to talk a little bit about the Empress Dowager. And, oh, yes. Uh, interesting information um, on uh, kind of the myths behind how much can we blame her for when it comes to this. 
So I'm sure anyone who knows about this event knows that uh, she was particularly blamed for a specific thing. They thought that, you know, when the, when the being, and please correct me when I say things wrong, because <laughs> I have to be corrected. The Beiyang. 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 There you go. Perfect. Perfect. That's why I stopped filming with my camera and with a teleprompter and actually did what every other YouTuber does slowly reads it out edits when i mess up so now i hope to god i will actually fix things but it has not fixed my english mistakes which has been funny <laughs> suzerainty I, I can't remember what i said but anyways um she was basically be it had to do with the summer palace as we know they were yes. building up the summer palace roughly at the same time mm -hmm. and uh, her birthday was coming up actually in 1894 but the rumor was as i'm sure it comes up every year yeah the rumor was that all of a sudden in about 1889 or 1887, actually, they stopped funding as much money into the fleet. Right. New ship construction and yeah. even uh, ammunition and maintenance for the existing ships. Oh, yeah. I have, I'll, I'll say it a bit. There, yeah. I had a guy who commented one of the funniest things ever. He, he commented that uh, he was told by uh, one of his grandfathers <laughs> that some of the munition shells for the ships turned out to be concrete blocks. Because oh yeah someone had embezzled or like just oh know, yeah concrete and, sawdust uh that's that's the stories i heard growing up too so they're true they are true it, it did happen okay but when she retired and quote unquote she never really did when she gave the reign over to the emperor it cough cough yeah she uh she told him under explicit orders to continue funding the fleet she actually never specifically I mean, this is all alleged, I guess, at this point said to, you know, take funds, put into the Summer Palace. What actually ended up happening was he himself had a few advisors with him who did not take Japan seriously. And that sounds bizarre. I even went on the wiki page, which now has something written about this, because I said this sounds like they're brushing over something. But the advisors, they never looked at Japan seriously, even when the whole Korean situation was coming about. That's and a then, Oh, we'll talk about that. <laughs> and um, like most times in the Chinese history, there's always natural disasters. Like it's unbelievable. These natural disasters happen at the worst times. And so much money had to be used to cover some uh, major flooding and an earthquake, I believe. Oh, and okay. uh, there was a rebellion, actually. a concurrent. Well, I mean, there's a few rebellions that were going the on. The late Qing is full of rebellions. Yeah. Rebellions and natural disasters. That's no, no doubt about that. So allegedly, a lot of these funds actually went there. And that's what some of the sources are saying today. But I mean, it's still all alleged. Interesting. The traditional Interesting. story was that she had embezzled money to go pay for her summer palace. Right, right. That is, I think that's the story that every uh, Chinese person was raised on, uh, demonizing the Dowager Empress Cixi. And I, I, as I mentioned to you, like right before we started recording, uh, she committed the cardinal sin of being a woman in Chinese history, which means that she is not getting away with anything, whether she did it or not. So, you know, in China being a traditionally Confucian patriarchal society, to have a woman ruling is considered like the almost like the archetypal evil. It's up there with like appointing your second or third son to be your successor as like the some of the worst things you could possibly do. I mean, there were so, some sources that called her a witch. Uh, I'm sure that's not the worst thing that they called her. <laughs> like, I've seen some very crazy stories because a lot of the things I read uh, are written at certain points in time, even in like the time that they were, uh, some of them are primary sources and my God, everything is misspelled. Oh, my, my, my script, if anyone could see it, I have the like old spelling of a lot of the places. Like, oh, the old uh, Wade Giles? Yeah, like uh, S-O-O. C-H-O-W for Zhuzhou. Oh, yes. Suzhou instead of Suzhou. And I, thank God, I actually like took the time to really find the more modern spellings. And I am using the modern spellings for almost everything. Opinion, it's good, confusing. good. Yeah, yeah. The the old spelling, the Wei Zhao spelling, it theoretically is easier for an English-speaking person to pronounce. Yeah. Uh, assuming you're going to try and pronounce the pronounce it in the Chinese or the Cantonese dialect. Um, but the pinyin system is, I mean, it's, made by Chinese people to pronounce the Chinese language. It's got 
some rules that you have to learn, but once you learn them, they're completely consistent all the way through. And you don't have to deal with like apostrophes or any other kind of weirdness, double, all those double S's and stuff. So it's, uh, you know, all, all respect to uh, Mr. Wade and, and Giles. They did the best they could at the time. Uh, and we probably owed, owed them a great debt, but now in 2021, we got Pinyin, so let's let's use that. It it does the job a little better. The most brutal had to be uh, there was one book I read on both Opium Wars, and uh, it significantly covered the Taiping Rebellion, and it had primary source documents, and I got to see what people were trying to spell out when they found places, and that was really funny. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that Navy officers hearing Chinese for the first time and like trying to report on where they are, uh, they probably don't have the, you know, they, they can't Google the way, the proper way Giles spelling of something. They're just trying to get this message and then go fight tomorrow's battle. And uh, incredibly, every primary source from British officers, never a casualty on their part. It's magical. Yeah. Magical. I can, I can look at the sources and see how many men showed up into China and how many men left. And I can tell you that, yeah, a lot of people mm. died. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. They would make it sound like every time a single British redcoat was killed, it had to be an accident. A lot of cases of, oh, there was a powder keg, it accidentally went off and we lost a few men. Never that the opponent who was fighting us actually killed a few of us. Oh, that's a really good point because whenever, you, I think most of the sources that you get on like Wikipedia, they just take the, uh, the British primary sources at face value. So that's why you get these stories of like incredibly lopsided casualty figures. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, those casualty figures, there's kind of like, those, those are pretty much details. Those are petty numbers. The, the, we know the result of the war and that's, that's not in any kind of dispute. Although, and I'm sure we can get it into this in more detail, the uh, Imperial throne in Beijing at the time did not even know the results of the battles as they were happening uh famously they had to call in the like a foreign advisor to come and talk to the emperor so he could find out for himself like hey did we are we winning or losing what is actually going on over there yeah it was uh the battle over port, port arthur they had no idea the fleet had not been it wasn't fully destroyed by that point but mm -hmm. it was knocked out they didn't know yeah. for a long time yeah yeah that's uh it's tragic I, I don't think there's another word, word to describe it that the the chinese had a system then and actually from in from the past too of uh beheading defeated generals which is a great way to get rid of uh loyal but unsuccessful commanders and also a great way to make sure you don't get good information from your dudes in the field yep it really was and uh yeah. i mean i I, I didn't want to go into it. So actually, it's going to be in part two. I, I had an episode where I talked about basically how the system of the Qing military works with the Eight Banner Army, the Green Standard Army. And now after the Taiping Rebellion, we have, you know, quite the militias, like the Wei Army. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, I don't know if the Jiang Army still was around after that because you only hear about the Wei. And then there was the Braves. The Hawaii Army, you mean? Oh, Hawaii, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Nihong Chang's yeah. baby, which yeah. was yeah. the best fighting army in the war. And it was the minority and it fought the most battles for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, I think that's important to understand when you're talking about China and Japan in this in this conflict. Oh, yeah. uh, Japan at this point had a national army that was funded. Yeah, standardized weapons funded through regular um, sources that it could rely on and and bank on um, in terms of like its growth and investment and whatnot. Meanwhile, poor Li Hongzhang, he had to pretty much beg for every dollar that he could get a hold of. Uh, and it showed, it, it showed in, the, uh, in the effectiveness of his weapons, you know, the, the men, even the infantry with their small arms, they couldn't count on their cartridges having the correct type of powder to fire, uh, you know, to, out to the proper range or sometimes even to fire at all. And, you know, just like you said, with the... Uh, the artillery shells of the ships, just not, not reliable. And I think 
when you're taking the uh, national army against what's essentially a feudal army, you have like the army of uh, a duke who's trying to levy, trying to raise funds on his own. It, it's, not, it's not a contest. I've often said that nationalism is the most powerful idea yeah. to ever exist. And at this time, the Japanese had it in spades and the Chinese did not. Uh, in all of history, there has no force with nationalism has ever lost to a force without nationalism. No nation has ever lost to a non-nation except once. And, and that's in the largest conflict in history. That's the Eastern Front of World War II. So yes, that's, that's the asterisk, but it's a big one. Actually, I can explain to the audience because I know for Westerners, this is something that's completely overlooked. You look at Japan. Japan had its, uh, well, now it's a prefecture system. used to be domains. When Japan sent its army, it wasn't, oh, here's a bunch of guys from Choshu. Here's a bunch of guys from Tosa, and they fight as a whatever regiment. No, they are Japanese now. They have yes. unity, patriotic. But for the Chinese, already you got a banner army, green standard army, militias. You have all these different groups, but they're coming yep. from different regions with different yep. dialects. They have yep. no affinity for each other. No yep. reason to fight for their fellow brother. This is some guy, maybe you had a rebellion against him. Maybe he's your enemy in that territory. Mm -hmm. So this mishmash shows up to the battle, and some of them are fully modernized. Some of them are medium and some of them are archaic and don't forget the the chinese armies they're all brought together to fight for a manchu f to fight for another kind of foreigner uh, i think in in the book that uh that i cited uh by scm Payne, there's a section at the very end where they interview a chinese american and he basically says hey these these chinese people they they can't say this in china because they're going to get beheaded if they do but why would they fight what do they care whether they're ruled by a Japanese king or a Tartar king? At least it looks like the Japanese kings are doing a good job ruling over the Japanese people. Yeah, um, I would. it's actually because uh, I just finished my script for part two. So I talk really in depth about the blame game when it came to the administration. So it's Manchu run, like you say. They actually chose uh, Li Hongzheng. Is that how you pronounce it? Li Hongzhang. His Li name Hong is Zhang. pretty cool because uh, uh, his name is Li Hongzhang. Li is the surname, of course, and Hong means uh, it means like great or vast, but it ha also has the implication of uh, of a swan, so like a huh. vast swan. And I forget what Zhang is. Hang on, let me just look it up real quick. The yeah. Zhang is uh, oh, it's means like order or rule or regulation so his uh his parents had high hopes for him so he was a han chinese yes he wasn't yes, Han chinese correct they, when they had to send uh envoys who were illegally allowed to affix a seal they had only two choices that japan gave them and japan was very smart about this yeah there are no dummies prince gong who was a uh, manchu mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. Li, who's a han so they sent the han because they knew and this it's played into their history at least it wasn't a Manchu who would sign these terrible treaties so they could blame not just him, but the fact that he's a Han Chinese. So yes. they could place the blame away from them because everyone hated the Manchu. Well, not everyone, but there's a really large sentiment against Manchus at this point. Yes. And yes. they knew it would get worse if a Manchu did it. So yeah, the blame game played out and then it even goes to the Dowager Empress. Like they, they, all these people are trying to shift blame around. No one wants to actually take, you know, responsibility. Right. Right. The, uh, I think that's one of the biggest weaknesses of the Chinese state at this time. It's that everybody is looking out for themselves. They're all trying to save their own neck and nobody is willing to, uh, to step forward and be like, Hey, I want to do what's best for the empire, for the country. Because except Lee. yeah, except for Lee. And he got, uh, he got amply rewarded, yeah. quote unquote rewarded for his efforts. God, it's, it's heartbreaking at, at the end because the source I have talks about personally the personal conversations he had with uh, Ido Hirobumi at the end. Yeah. And it's like they, they, I mean, not to call them friends, although it does seem like they were personally pretty close because they had worked yeah. on previous negotiations. They actually spoke to each other in English. What's funny is when they did the treaty for this war, um, Lee brought an interpreter because I guess for appearance sake, he needed to like put a wall between him. And it makes sense because uh, their nations were at stake. But he asked, 
it's so tragic at the very end Mm-hmm. Ido said to him, you know, in 1886, before this all started, you threatened me and you said that our countries might go to war. And I told you that you need to get your country to modernize. And Lee said, I tried, but it's the conservatives mm-hmm. that were in power in my country. And they just thwarted my efforts. He's like, I really did everything I could. And then he asked him, if we had switched places, what would you have done? And Ido said, I could not have done as well as you. That was Ooh. the end of the treaty Ooh. signing. Oh, so, man, manly tears. Yeah, it's like it, you had mentioned when we talked before, like there was a bit of a bromance. It really does seem so. But it's tragic because when Lee, uh, when he signed this and he went back home and he got almost all of his titles taken away from him, he yeah. vowed to yeah. never set foot on Japanese soil again. And a few years after, they, um, he was in harbor in Japan and he didn't get off the ship because he had made the stance. Oh, so, wow. Really, wow. like his... Uh, he fought his entire life to basically modernize the empire and yeah. then he gets blamed. It's, it's incredible. The irony behind it. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, unfortunately that's what sometimes happens, right? Like if you set out to try and do something good, at, but you're not given the sufficient resources to do it, then uh, even when you fail the, then that's enough for the people who didn't help you anyways to be like, ah, oh, see, it was a bad idea all along. Uh, but of course, personally, you still got to try your best to do what's right. Uh, consequences be damned. Like if there was no Li Hongzhang, then then what would have become of the Manchus, right? Then what would have become of the Chinese state? He was, uh, I mean, he, he had control like most of these regional warlords in an essence. He had control yeah. over his little army and he did modernize his own well. little pocket. But yeah. he, he was not allowed to gain control over a, any national system because that would al- allow a, a Han Chinese too much power. And then he could depose the dynasty. Yeah, you know, the Dowager Empress actually was she was given flack for for hiring him. But it was traditional, apparently, to put a Han Chinese in the exact position he was in because it was like the certain level of respect just to keep everyone happy because you couldn't have Manchus in every great position, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You need to, you got to do a little bit of dividing and conquering. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's really his legacy. I mean, he, he, he's like one of the greatest heroes of the Taiping rebellion. And then he, he forms what is almost the only modernized army that did anything at that point. Yeah. And then, yeah, he's the only guy really, his army ends up fighting all the battles in this war and he's the only one who really did anything. Yeah, and he's fighting headwinds from the imperial court the whole time. Yeah. Uh, even like from the moment like he lost the first battle, there were people saying, "Hey, your modern weapons are no good." Obviously, because you lost this battle. We never lost battles like this when we were using like these old timey like muzzle loading two person jingles. Why don't we go back to oh those? Those are and then, so funny. Yeah, and then if and anybody who stands up for him they get accused of being not patriotic enough, like not Chinese enough, kind of like uh, in America, if you didn't support the war on terror, then you were accused of being like not American enough. I think that's that impulse. uh, That's common to all humans. If you, um, if you don't support like the traditional thing, then your manhood is called into question. It's so true. Yeah. The most, uh, I think the, the most heartbreaking part, you know, looking forward into history was during the, those negotiations when uh, Li Hongzhang asked Ito Hirobumi, like, hey, why don't we uh, Asian people work together and deal with like the European, like the, the white people who are coming to prey on us both? And uh, Ito is basically like, dude, that sounds nice, but I got to work with the winners here. I mean... And- before uh, before the war happened, they were on the same page with that. Even the the diplomats in Korea, they all had this idea because the f- the fear was Russia this whole time. They they saw the Trans Siberian Railway coming in. They saw that Russia really wanted a warm water port in Asia, which it was threatening. And Russia was positioning itself just above Korea. So from the Japanese point of view, it's like Korea is a paper castle. It could be taken in a matter of weeks. Yeah. This enemy country could just take Korea and trample over yeah. us and they thought snapping their fingers they thought the Qing dynasty they thought that the Chinese probably wouldn't be able to do anything about it so they could they couldn't trust that China's hold over Korea was going to last and it sounds weird in retrospect because a lot of scholars I mean 
today they think they, they they try to go back in time and they say this is the time when japan was like evil and they're planning this all along and you know the rumor was that like before the war kicked off japanese businessmen were in china gathering information allegedly it was because of chinese market opportunities because the market was growing they were trading in the 1880s they thought it was going to get better but yeah china was pretty rich uh, prior to the start of this war right Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they bought two German battleships uh, that scared the yeah. hell of the Japanese. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the Japanese, they ended up getting all this information on whatever was the Chinese market. And the market happened to be military installations. And you can look at it and you can already tell, like, yeah, um, the Japanese had intelligence over the Chinese. And then when you look at the other side of the coin, it just, for some reason, other than Lee, no one in Beijing actually gave a shit about Japan. They didn't have any real good intelligence on what was going on. They weren't prepared. So yeah. there was reports from military officers from the Chinese side when they were fighting in Manchuria, they said that the Japanese had better maps than them. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Yeah. That's brutal. That's and brutal. This has led uh, World War II scholars in China to believe that this was all planned and this was the great invasion of China that we you know we'll see and mm. I, I i give them some some heave yeah of course there could be of course it's a country that's modernizing and it did have ambitions like that i i mind you at that point in time i don't think they were thinking that far ahead but uh yeah i mean when i think when you look at the second sino-japanese war it's oh, yeah. it's clear that there was no like overarching imperial will guiding the japanese people at the time they kind of got uh yanked into that war by an ex by like an impulsive and aggressive military and by a civilian government that was afraid of getting assassinated if they said anything against the military the assassinations so I, are incredible those stories from the 20s and 30s yeah yeah but that story is not going to get any headway in china at all uh when i mentioned this story when i when i mentioned this to my to my own parents they got angry with me they're like what like as if i was like trying to defend the japanese uh like the japanese during this time so i you know i backed off that one quick i was like Ugh. what did you grow up calling the war because i i actually did an episode talking about how the the definition and what what world war ii or the pacific war is called by the countries is completely different and china has some of the most interesting titles for it uh i mean I grew up in America, so I learned the American version of the story first. So to, to me, originally, it was just World War II. Um, but when I talked to like my Chinese tutor, and then they mainly call it uh, the Kang Zhi Zhang Kang is like the resist. The war of resistance. Fight. Yeah, and Zhi is, of course, short for Japan, Japan. So the, basically the war, the anti-Japan war or the war of resistance against Japan. Yeah, it's been called also the longest one was the War of Resistance Against Japanese Fascism. That was that a very long sounds one. Sounds like it's shorter in Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, the Japanese, of course, they just see it as like, uh, it's just, it just, you always translate to the Sino-Japanese War because from their point of view, it was just, it was a war in Asia and they don't want to talk about the other side because Japan is like, we never, we never had this war in the Pacific mm, with America. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. The... Uh, I'm sure we can get into the Japanese views of history. Uh, we can go go pretty deep into there. Um, yeah, they just pretty much dig in their backyard, take their history books, throw it in there, and say it never happened. I mean, for the longest yeah. time, it was like that. I don't, I don't blame them. I guess for being like, well, I mean, they have to tell this isn't something at some point, but yeah. I mean, all history is political, right? Mm. And especially when it's taught in schools, history isn't taught to educate. History is taught as an adjunct to nation building. So when you teach history, you're, you're not really telling the story of what happened. What you're doing is telling people why, it's, what you're doing is telling people who they are, not what happened in the past, who they are and why they are. So that's, that's why history textbooks are always such a contentious topic here in America and abroad. 
And I'm sure, well, I was going to say I'm sure they're contentious in Canada too, but uh, I just feel like Canadians oh, gotta, just are nice to everyone. The biggest one is the War of 1812 because, I mean, it's like it's that one thing that Canadians, and we weren't even in Canada at the time, would like to hold over the United States. It's like, oh, we got to burn down yeah. the, well, it was the Brown House before the White House, but yeah. uh, it was Turned actually it natives, native allies who did it, but everyone, Canada's like, yeah, it was us. It's like, it was British soldiers and some native allies. It wasn't really the <laughs> Canadians, so... But now we're best friends, so we're still cool, right? Yeah, yeah, we have that monument up. It's uh, just on the border. It's like, we'll never go to war again, it says. yeah. Against anyone or just against America? No, no, against like Canada and America. We're forever allies. Oh, okay. The okay. only time we okay. didn't directly jump into conflict was Iraq. We instead went to Afghanistan. Mm, that was like okay. the first time we broke that agreement, I guess. I think I think that's a good time to do it. Uh, Vietnam would have yeah. been good too. Oh man, yeah. No one really. It's funny. I I, I work on an Aboriginal reservation. I'll, we have a ton of uh, Nam vets. They. Uh, I don't know why. It's so many of the community I work for. A lot of them went to Vietnam. Interesting. We have a bunch a of Aboriginals that went to that went to Nam. Yeah, I work for a Mohawk reserve. Uh, so they kind of are not to call them like a more of a warring tribe but they have a reputation honestly amongst the other like the algonquins the other tribes it's like the mohawks so they're the warriors they're the ones who fought the big wars so yeah they have a lot of world war ii vets a lot of vietnam vets well, two questions i wanted to ask about that number one uh did nam vets receive the same rough treatment after the war that in for in canada that they did in america oh that's a good question because canada are we canada and the united states have differences when it comes to this but in canada you can't get away no matter what going after veterans. That's like a no, no, we, we have like a British mentality about the vets. So I want, I want to say it wasn't as bad, but the time period we had the hippie movement too. So I think they probably did do some mm. of that stuff, mm. but probably due to like the different press rules that uh, it didn't get the same coverage that it did in America. Well, yeah, but the atrocities that happened, and then the American government was like, "Oh, it was marijuana induced." Or like, mm, okay. likely, likely. Uh, the second question I want to ask is: uh, so most casuals they hear Mohawk and they think of the hairstyle. Does the hairstyle come from the people? Good question. Because um, a lot of the members, the males, have the traditional hairstyle, but oh my god, I don't know myself because. I, I had to do Aboriginal history, but I didn't specialize in Mohawk culture. I actually, I really like South America. So I, I oh, love okay. Aztecs. That's my, that was always my thing. Everybody but, likes Aztecs. No, because all the Algonquins I see have Mohawks too. So <laughs> I guess back then, probably that's what they were known for. It's what, you know, dignified their look. But uh, for Aboriginals back, way back before the Europeans showed up, you know, you, you refer to people based off of their location to you. So Ottawa, which is in Canada, they call them Ottawa because it means like they're on that side of the river, but it's from the point oh, of view okay. of the people in the south. So it's like people, saying northerner. Yeah, but the people over there don't call themselves Ottawa; they call themselves whatever. That's why for the for my community, they can be Ganyagea people. They can they can be the Ongwe Ongwe people if you want. Oh, There's a lot of different titles. Interesting exonyms. Yeah, a lot of different names. It's so confusing. There's there's language. one tribe. Uh, there's one tribe in America in in the United States of America that's known by a word that translates into enemy, right? I can't remember what, what tribe that is. Like they're, they're commonly known by an exonym given to them that translates into enemy because in French they, like, or in English in the, in like the native language through oh, yeah. by which they're commonly known because they're primarily known. I guess like the, the white settlers primarily had contact with, tribe a who yeah. did a lot of fighting against tribe b so they called tribe b enemy so tri the the white settlers just assumed that tribe b was called enemy it's really it's really complex because like you said we, i'm calling them mohawks uh they refer to themselves the name for their own people is like people of the flint of the rock because they had used the type of rock where they were oh, but okay, they, that makes sense. I, the the idea that their hair piece was like the most defining thing of, for them probably wasn't relevant this their enemies called the mohawks probably because they're like look oh, that yeah. hairstyle that's mohawk oh yeah it'd be like calling uh it'd be like calling all englishmen neckties yeah oh in uh french uh, 
fucking so stupid. Uh, what the French used to call the British officers is the tête carré, the square heads. It's because of uh, the hats and everything they wore. Uh, to funny. this day, it's a slur against the English. Which, yeah, <laughs> I am, uh, people wonder, despite the fact I mess up in English all the time, I am not French. <laughs> and, uh, oh, there's all sorts of bizarre things. And there's even really weird racial slurs that you find, especially in French. French is one of the most racially slurred language you'd ever imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, the French, uh, the French did a lot of fighting and they did a lot of winning. So I imagine they've earned the right to look down on all kinds of different people. You know, when you look at history, it's like the French for most human history, dominant, always won every war. And then World War II happens. It's yeah, like, except for the big one. <laughs> yeah. Forget so, all their history. Yeah, yeah. At least in the Anglosphere. Oh, for sure. The English will never let them uh, off the hook. Oh, yeah. I had, a, I had an English roommate once. And, you know, England, for the last hundred years, England has had problems with Germany. It's had problems with Russia. Um, but when I talk to him about how he feels about the Germans and the Russians, he's like, oh, cool, but stuff the French. <laughs> yeah, no, it really <laughs> is like that. It's funny. Like, they can get over the massive bombing raids from the Germans that killed most yeah. of my family, mind you. Like, if my, if my, I'm talking to my Nana, God rest her soul, if she heard uh, I dated a German woman for two years and I almost <laughs> emigrated to Germany, she'd probably lose it. <laughs> I won't tell her. Yeah. Oh, boy. Germany's a yeah. lovely country, by the way. It's very, very fun. Very fun. I, I've never been, but I've imagined it's. I imagine it's beautiful. I just think it's funny that you know, as far as uh, my former roommate is concerned, the last hundred years of friendship, whatever, stuff the French. <laughs> it's funny because the French are like their greatest ally it's to this day. You yeah, think, yeah, America, yeah. of course, but the French have really been there for them for a long time. Yeah, I, uh, I, you know, on dispatches from the armchair, we did a podcast on England, and one of the, uh, one of the things I that we pointed out is that the English nation is in many ways born out of this conflict with France. Like the, to be English is in many ways is to be not French. Well, there is a reason for it because like in the history when England was founded, most of the legal writing was in Latin. Then it was put in French and it was a long time before well, it was English. When, when England was founded, you mean like after 1066? Oh God, yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you know, it goes like England goes. Founded is a funny term when you're talking Normans about Normans. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Like, they are French in essence. I mean, other than, yeah. like, unless you're like, oh, I'm a Bretonian, you know, of like one of the Celt tribes that survived or something. But uh, yeah, yeah. If you're from uh, Wales, I guess you are. And the uh, the motto of the King of England is in French, isn't it? Yeah. Probably. Yeah, Do it, Mondroy. Am I saying that correctly? Say it again. Do it, Mondroy. God and my right. God, am I right? Dois would be right. Dois. Actually, I, I'm embarrassed. I don't even know what the, what, the, uh, what the saying is. I completely forget it. But yeah, you are to my right. It's like, do it to mon droit. Mm. Yeah. Oh, man, this woodcut. The, there is some sick Japanese art from this period. Uh, yeah. I got to hand it to them. I always pull, you know, all my thumbnails end up being the wood blocks because they're just so beautiful looking. Yeah. I have to say, though, um, some of the paintings of the uh, you can't see it here, but the um, the Chinese running, you can see like some super racism put in there. Uh, where I, I don't know if I have one of the pictures where they literally make them look like children. There's one I found. I was like, wow, that's really bad. <laughs> I mean, I if the Chinese had uh, had their own artists at the front lines then we could hear from them but to their to our everlasting shame we didn't even have enough bullets let alone artists or reporters or journalists so we we forfeited our uh, our voice in this conflict due to the uh due to the corruption and incompetence of the house you know um lee was asked a question about journalists in his country and about the truth and he made a funny remark in english he's like unlike in america where it's the truth something something about the truth and only the truth he's like you can't have that in my country because no one could possibly write that without being killed mm. it was an american correspondent who's asking about like news outlets in china versus in america and it was a funny story i don't know where i, I had found it but yeah 
Yeah, there were no... I mean, if the emperor himself can't get accurate dispatches from the front, there is no chance for any journalist. And at the time, the literacy rate in China was so abysmal anyways, and the status of soldiers was so low that uh, good luck getting any information out of them. By any chance, and it's actually, it's on the wiki page if people are curious, but because uh, the war was only declared after basically the uh, one of the first naval battles. So when they, uh, when they declared official war, it was the two emperors who were declaring it to the people. Have you seen it by any chance? I don't think I have. I, I might have like skimmed over it once, but not, not recently. To brutally summarize, the Japanese write like any politician to today. It's like we are speaking to the, the great nations of the world, the, the, the family oh, of yeah, nations, yeah. projecting that, oh, we are one, one amongst you. You can really see that they're trying to make themselves to be a world power. But the Chinese emperor, he uses the, the slur that you taught me for Japanese the exclusively. Dwarven. And he says it like 20 times. And he's like, those indecent Eastern dwarves. Yeah. He's like, they tricked us, uh, they attacked us, surprise attacked us, they broke these treaties. We're just trying to protect our, our vassal, Korea. And it's like the Japanese point out in there is Korea is an independent state. They shouldn't be in this vassalhood anymore. Like, they're like saying this to the world. So the emperor dropped the ball. They're totally the independent for us to attack them if we want to. It's got nothing to do with you, anyways. Yeah. It's incredible the differences of tones between the two emperors, and you're like, wow, this is really political. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of blame gets heaped on, um, on the Manchu ruling house for their inability to, uh, to effectively modernize, you know, including by me. So, you know, justified and unjustified. But uh, to their, you know, in defense of, uh, of the Manchus, they were dealing with challenges far beyond what the Japanese ruling class uh, had oh, to yeah. deal with. Like not only are A, they are the number one target for all of these predatory Western imperialists, while Japan basically gets to like sit on the sidelines, make friends with England, like the biggest, scariest imperialist, imperialist of them all. Yeah. Uh, also, like Japan is a much smaller physically smaller country that is bounded by the ocean so in order to exert state power over this much smaller space it's just logistically so much simpler meanwhile china is incredibly vast um and worst of all it's ruled by this alien dynasty who can't you know these manchus they they can't implement some far-reaching changes uh, because they have to cling to these traditional Chinese ideas in order to maintain their legitimacy uh, on, on top of this like, enormous Han ethnicity that they have to rule over. So it's, even, if, you know, even, if we ascribe, even if they had the best of intentions uh, with their reforms, which I can't say that they necessarily did, uh, the the challenges they faced are so much greater than those that the Japanese faced that it would have been, they would have needed generations of strong central leadership and focused effort in order to, in order to make something happen. And in the end, you know, it's, we're kind of jumping way ahead now to the, uh, to the time period, the original time period of your channel, but Chiang Kai-shek, he gets a lot of flack for, um, for being corrupt and incompetent, justifiably. But in his defense, he's ruling through this cobbled together Game of Thrones-esque collection oh, yeah. of warlords who barely listen to him anyways. Uh, it took it, like the complete revolution of the communists, like reaching, you know, bypassing all of the traditional institutions of power and going directly to the people. You know, when you're going to the people, you're going right to the very fount of power itself. Uh, you're like tapping directly into the source. Only then was, uh, was Mao Zedong able to truly unify China. And speaking of nationalism, uh, you know, nationalism is an idea that we in the West completely take for granted. But when you read uh, accounts of Chairman Mao during the second Sino-Japanese War and during the Chinese Civil War, probably 80% of the uh, man hours spent by the Red Army were spent educating the people, trying to like awaken the spirit of nationalism amongst the population. That, uh, that consciousness, uh, 
that wokeness to use a modern term that was that was like the essential element um in the war well said and uh you know there's a there's a youtube channel called alternate history hub and i believe they touched this they touched i might have seen that video is it the one where what if mao didn't pull it off yeah 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 and the idea was that despite Chiang Kai-shek, whatever he would have done, he would have never been able to really hold over any of the region. Like it would have been fragmented somewhat. It was an interesting concept because you look at everything and it's like, yeah, Chiang Kai-shek, like you said, he was, he was fighting a Game of Thrones. It was warlords and the guy almost got killed so many times for doing it. Mal held yeah. in the back. He was in a great region. He was in a very yep. safe region compared to everyone else. And he was able to hold down and go through the education process, which worked right into his favor. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to imagine Mal not winning. It's uh, it actually is. It's incredible that he did win in a lot of ways too, but it's like Talk you about said, a long shot, the long game paid out. I mean, he let his enemies, like, let's be honest, he let his enemies fight and he let them bleed out before he really put in. Yeah. There's the famous story of, uh, Decades after the Civil War, he met some Japanese businessmen, and the Japanese, uh, the Japanese businessmen said, "Hey, hey, uh, Mr. Mao, sorry about, uh, sorry about the invasion and like all the war and stuff." And Mao goes, "Hey, you don't need to apologize to me. If you hadn't invaded, how could I have beaten Chiang Kai-shek?" Jeez, that is cynical. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's a story. I don't know if it, I don't know if it was ever actually said or not, but uh, Mao was, uh, he, he, say what you will about him. He thought a couple steps ahead. He was playing chess, not checkers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, where was I read it? The work time that he put in was incredible. He, and it's actually similar to Stalin. He just wouldn't stop working. He burnt the midnight oil, as you say, and he just kept going. And that's how he overcame a lot of his political adversaries within the party at the beginning because he wasn't head honcho right away like he had to fight a little bit which is yeah he had to fight a lot uh he didn't he didn't really become the top dog until after the long march yeah, um, he's lucky and he's yeah and luck. just to survive the long march that means you know the long march had what 90 percent casualties 99 percent casualties there's you got to be pretty lucky you know, so if that's if that's not the mandate of heaven, I don't know what is. It's so funny when you have Westerners who, you know, even historians who, who've typically done the European war, and then they find out, oh, the Eastern Front, what the casualties are like. It's like, oh, my God, 95% yeah. of the casualties in this war, it's in the Eastern Front. And then they're oh, like, yeah. they're not talking about the 80% of the casualties, Pacific. yeah, 80% of the German casualties took place in Russia. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, well, what? oh yeah, this Asian war, that's not part of this equation. How much did they lose? And it's like, What? yeah yeah it's i mean learning about chinese history is a trip because nowadays we think of china as being one country and this is an idea that's extremely like strongly uh perpetrated perpetuated um it's it's like fiercely advocated for by the chinese government for obvious reasons uh, but if you look at the scale and scope of Chinese history, you look at the numbers, look at the, the distances and the diversity of culture and even of uh, language and probably even of genetic diversity, China is r- kind of like a world unto itself. When you say China, that's like the same as saying Europe or probably not as probably not as much as saying Africa, but it's it's huge. It's almost, you know, it's. It's almost like an entire uh, mini universe. I had drinks with an Indian historian once because I my, I don't know much about Indian history. Sorry to my viewers. I'm going to learn it for this. Embarrassingly for uneducated about Indian history. And he explained it to me like this. He said, India isn't a real thing. He's like, it's not a bunch of countries. The British made say, it up. Yeah. He's like, we got sh- smushed into this thing called a country called India. He's like, we all have different religions. We have different dialects, different languages. He's like, we're nothing alike. And he goes, they force us to be a country. And he goes, and then they wonder why we have all these rebellions, and all this. And then he said the same thing. He's like, it's like China. And at the time I wasn't educated in all of this, but it's somewhat similar. It's like the Manchu come in and, you know, they're, they're over reigning over this territory, but it's different people encompass it it is extraordinary that they held it together the way they did yeah 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 yeah. in in a lot of ways when you talk about china it's like talking about the roman empire 
Yeah, and exactly. The Roman Empire, you know, at it once was a unified political body, and but when you look at it today, it goes. It's all of Europe and North Africa and a big chunk of the Middle East. These are complete. These encompass dozens of totally different cultures, languages, peoples, but they were all ruled together once upon a time. Uh, the difference is China is the Roman Empire that never went away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like all the scholars say, uh, China always thinks a thousand years from the future, I believe, is a phrase. Uh, I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that. Is there, I, I know Dan Carlin, in a lot of his episodes, he was talking about how the visions of major generals and conquerors, it's like they're looking to survive the moment, to establish their dynasty. Maybe their children are going to take over, but it's always, yeah, he said, maybe a generation. Yeah. It's always been the Chinese have always had this idea of like, yes, the, it's going to be a thousand years. We always, we might get hurt now, but we're always going to be alive. The, the, our civilization will never fall. Mm, always the long yeah. haul. There was like yeah. some kind of, there was a special word for it. I forget, but yeah. And that concept, that concept of like this, enduring centrality that wasn't really seriously challenged until this conflict this mm -hmm. war that we're talking about now where they're like hey guys this is really not working for us and you know the Qing dynasty it was plagued by all kinds of rebellions prior to this but uh, it I think this conflict was the moment where things really started to get serious well uh Actually, a great way to look at it is when you look at the military of the Qing Dynasty up to this point, it actually was built to fight and quell rebellions, never exactly. to fight another nation. It exactly. was the first time that they were tested and they weren't prepared to fight another nation, honestly, because of the embezzling of ammunitions. And yep. like you said, yep. they didn't have standard rifles. So a lot of them had different guns. So just there, you have different sorts of ammo. You have logistics of getting ammo. Nightmare. To, yeah. Couldn't, no, no officer could ever make it work and it, it happened to the ships too the ships had different ammo or like this one viewer told me concrete <laughs> shells yep yep concrete sawdust yeah. and uh opium yes the the it's i mean we haven't really talked about it here but the, yeah. yeah the influence like the penetration of opium in chinese society at this point uh, i think that is that will exert a subtle influence on everything that happens uh, in both civil and military society. Although, um, you know, in, in addition to my historical interest, I also work in, uh, I spent a lot of time in nightlife and in harm reduction. And, you know, of course, being Chinese, I was raised on the horror stories of the opium war, uh, how like opium was the poison of the nation, blah, blah, blah. But uh, recently I've been uh, getting educated from like a harm reduction angle. And what I've been learning is that like even heroin, which is of course an opiate, uh, heroin, like people who are heroin quote unquote addicts, uh, if as long as they're given their like pure substances, you know, of reliable um, potency and safe injection sites and safe injection routes, like, you know, clean needles and stuff, then they're able to live, um, they're able to live ordinary productive lives and you couldn't even tell that they were opium users or heroin users so i think you know as much as i just said that the influence of opium on chinese society was pervasive i am recently starting to wonder like how much of that is actually the case and how much of that is kind of uh, a narrative pushed by uh the chinese state to kind of prop up this century of humiliation story. Um, yeah, it I, does fall into the blame game because it's like another thing you can blame uh, something on. During the Vietnam War, the I forget what was the major atrocity, but they attributed it to the use of drugs as the uh, reason why the Marines... Eli? Yeah. And it was, uh, it was a scapegoat to cover up that guys were in the heat of war, a lot of their you know, fellow comrades were killed at that moment and they did horrible things as a result. And uh, actually, you know, since we're going on this long, I, I think uh, possibly we could probably have another podcast later to talk about the end of this war. So I could cut it up into two because I just realized okay, I, put out, okay, I, put yeah. out the first, I put out the first part. So people who might be listening to this podcast might, might, might be like, oh, we haven't even heard about <laughs> spoilers the battles, you know <laughs> so we haven't touched anything too far i found you know uh yeah we haven't really gotten into the tactics we haven't uh yeah. we've really just talked on like a very high level 
And um, the the one thing I one thing I did want to point out is you mentioned that the the Qing military was primarily designed to crush rebellions, mm-hmm. and that's true. But I don't want to cut the Manchu Empire. Uh, I, I don't want to sell them short because they did plenty of conquering in their early and vigorous days. Uh, but by the time that we're talking about, pretty much from the time of uh, from from the time the the Qianlong Emperor died on, it was things. It was just rebellion after rebellion, and their offensive power had pretty much completely evaporated. It's it's hard to even think about modernization when and we, we call these things rebellions in people's minds like oh it's like a few people. Yeah, they think it's like, like a riot. They, these rebellions were serious. Like yeah, think civil lethal. war. Yeah, I mean the, the Taiping Rebellion is the most famous. It's the bloodiest conflict in human history yeah. until World War Two, basically. Even yeah. World War One is kind of overshadowed by it. Yeah, I've heard second most lethal conflict, third most lethal conflict. Uh, it's hard to say because a, uh, it's hard to get reliable casualty numbers in any war, and it's especially hard to get reliable casualty numbers in a ginormous civil war where uh, the the basic functions of the state have started to decay. Yeah. And uh, I didn't, you know, it's funny looking back, I did a, I think it was 45 minute episode on it and I couldn't even touch most of it. I didn't touch the religious part of it because I I honestly had to cut something. I had a 20 page script and I could only do like 12 pages, honestly. And uh, for the part two of this episode, I'm at 10 pages and I'm worried because I know it's going to be past 20 minutes and I don't know what I'm going to do. I might just kill myself, shoot myself in the foot and keep it as it is, but we'll see. (laughs) I mean your your hardcore fans will stick through it um the nice thing is uh if people are using youtube red and they're going for a long drive then it's nice to throw it on and listen uh but um unfortunately youtube the way it's set up it's tough to get people to commit to a video over i don't know what the sweet spot is 10 minutes 15 minutes 10 15 yeah you lose people after 15 yeah i mean even myself i consider myself anything but casual but if I it's if it's the middle of the workday and I just need to take a break for some you know, like a short break in between tasks at work, I'm not going to watch a 45 minute documentary for it. Yeah, that's a very good point because that's exactly how I consume this too. If I if I'm like I, and the person knows this, there's uh, a channel History of China. I watch him. Oh, that's a great channel. Exactly, that's a great channel. I watch him for research, and I complimented him on uh, his part one of the Sino-Japanese War because I I honestly, I really wanted to see what he had to say because it was more the Chinese perspective. And he replied to me. He said, "Oh, you're the parrot guy." So I was like, "Oh, you've seen me." And uh, oh my god, it's like his stuff is on point because his narration's perfect, and he hits the time zone. He does do twenty minute plus though. I know that I notice. And especially with his part two of the Sino-Japanese War, I know what his sources are just by watching his stuff. And I try to be different than uh, the competitors. So I went a little different, but uh, he messed up. I'll say that. Ooh, well, he made a, oh. a few mistakes and I know why. It's just because he had older sources on a few things. It's a little nitpicking, but yeah. I mean, but he's still great, great, great YouTube channel. I mean, ultimately, if we want to be as if we want to be unassailable then we have to go to the primary sources and uh that's but that's for real historians we're youtubers which which i am not i I have a uh the professor who got me my job today his name is max bergholz he's ever out there and he's a historian of um yugoslavia more on he's specifically bosnia and uh, the genocides that took place there that interesting course I have a lot of background in that now. And he told me, you're not a historian if you do not speak the language and if you have not actually gone into people's homes, into their kitchens, and asked them what they saw. And that's what ah, he did. Ah, that's why Dan Carlin insists on saying he's not a historian. He's a fan of history. I like how he does that because I, I honestly want to do the same thing. Because, uh, you know, I have a degree in history, but uh, for my work, I, I use my other degree, which is in neuroscience. I, I'm more of a history lover. But yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I would consider myself history fan, history communicator, history yeah. popularizer, but I'm a long way from a real historian. It's like, um, d- did you, you know, George St. Pierre, right? Mm-hmm. I've seen him. He, he, uh, he, he did a podcast with Joe Rogan where he talked about his 
other love beyond mixed martial arts, which was paleontology. Yeah, I know. That's funny. Yeah. And he said he, after he retired from mixed martial arts, he went to do, he like went to do to like dig up dinosaurs. And there he realized he is no paleontologist. He likes to learn about paleontology, but when it comes time to like actually doing the research, he doesn't have time for it. He doesn't have the patience. So he doesn't have it in him to be a real paleontologist. Oh, I love, I love, of course, I love George St. Pierre because, you know, I've seen him in real life. He's like the biggest hero of the region I live in, right? But uh, I, 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 I imagine you saw, was it Captain America 2 Winter Soldier? He has like a cameo. I haven't seen it, but I've heard he's in it. Oh my God. He, um, he was supposed to play a, a, a France French guy. And if, I mean, if you're Quebecois, like he, he speaks like a, I don't want to besmirch his character, but he, he smoked like a Quebecois. And he, like, there's no buying the fact that he had <laughs> French. And it's like everybody in the theater. It's full was Americans, laughing. but no one else. A full theater of that Quebecois. I was there watching it and, and the, the laughter at like him responding <laughs> to Captain. But yeah, love, love him. One of the most, oh, one of the greatest fighters of our time, too. Absolutely. Like, he really rocked Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, like a true martial artist. Yeah. All right. You know what? I think. We can probably, uh, God, it's been, uh, definitely it's been over 45 minutes, I'd say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, it's uh, like an hour 15. This has been a ton of fun, and I'm so glad I finally got to speak to you. And I hope if you're interested, maybe at some point in the future, if you find time, we could actually do one more on this event and talk about, you know, why the naval battles went the way they went and the horrible end results and why it led to more war. Oh, it would be my great pleasure. Thank you for having me here, Craig. Um, and please it's... plug yourself again. Oh, yes. Uh, Dispatches from the Armchair. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Apple Podcast, uh, Stitcher, and you can follow us on Facebook if you'd like to speak to me or my co-host, uh, Mike, who is, uh, in my opinion, he's the heart and soul of that podcast. So I couldn't get anywhere without him. Uh, if you ever do a podcast, if you ever want to speak more on Russia, like maybe the Russo-Japanese War, I'm sure he'd be more than happy to jump on too. Oh, awesome! Yeah, that's gonna be a that's gonna be a big episode. I'm like, I'm really excited for the Boxer Rebellion. I'm gonna tell the audience right Oof. now. I don't a lot know of much. sad stories about China. I I'm very weak when it comes to the Boxer Rebellion because from my from my learning, it was always oh yeah, Japan. They had a little bit of vested interest. Yeah, they were there, but that's it. Like the Japanese, I, I, I've never read any in-depth sources on it. I've never seen the Chinese perspective on it, which I imagine is horrible. It's tragic. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to touch that soon. Yeah, yeah, I would be, I'd be happy to talk about any and all of that. You know, the Boxer Rebellion is uh, another sad story. A lot of, a uh, lot of, a lot of tears to be shed for the Chinese people in the next uh, in the next several decades of this story, um, but there's a mostly happy ending at the end. It's true. I mean, that's why they refer to it as the hundred years of humiliation. You're right, right. It's one of the most epic titles I've ever heard. Yeah, never again. Mm. And uh, right. that's been the Pacific War Channel over and out. <laughs>